I'm Lynn Harder, host of Defining Moments, a podcast produced by WOUB Public Media. Humans are storytellers. We tell stories to make sense of birthing and dying and everything in between. This podcast features stories about health and healing. It grew out of my desire to disrupt the silence that too often surrounds vulnerability. Join me as guests and I explore what it means to live well in the midst of inescapable illness and hardship. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Defining Moments. I hope you're ready to lean in and listen. Just deeply listen as I'm joined by Dr. Jody Kellis, an award-winning teacher and scholar whose work explores intersections between family storytelling and well-being. Jody is a professor and chair of communication studies at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where she is also founder and director of Narrative Nebraska, a research lab that studies and amplifies connections between interpersonal communication, health, and healing. Just a note to listeners, if you've been following us this season, you know that we are podcasting from our home spaces. So I'm in Athens, Ohio, and Jody's in Lincoln, Nebraska. Because we're at home, we just might be joined by dogs or teenagers. So if uh, Cleo and Jasper, our hounds, join us, we hope that you will take delight in that and, and not be alarmed. Jody, thanks so much for joining us today, and, and thank you for your inspired and inspiring work. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. I admire you, as you know, so much and this podcast, so I could not be more excited. Mm. Me too. I've been looking forward to it, in part because really for 20 years, Jody, you've had a sustained focus on family communication, and in particular, the role of storytelling in families. Jody, why, why family communication? Why a focus on storytelling? Yeah, I mean, I think both are, to me, foundational, fundamental processes to our humanness. So, um, I've had a lot of years to think about this, why these things, and they sort of unfolded in interesting ways, but uh, there's a few stories that sort of give background to this. So when I was uh, an undergraduate, I didn't know what I wanted my major to be, and I found myself in Kathleen Galvin's family communication class, Mm -hmm. and it was at that moment where I sort of had that aha these are my people. This is so interesting. I can't wait to come to class. This is what I want to think and talk about. And so that was one aha moment that started this journey on family communication because I then became a communication studies major. That was my favorite class. And when I decided to that what I wanted to do with my life was to teach and become a professor, I wanted to study family communication. Um, when I was doing my graduate degree, I was lucky enough to teach an interpersonal communication course, um, and we used John Stewart's book. Um, and mm-hmm. in that book, he writes the phrase that has basically guided my philosophy for teaching, research, and my life, which is that the quality of our communication is directly linked to the quality of our lives. And that just lit a fire in me in a way that helped me bring this fundamental interest in family and this idea of understanding the links between family communication and health and well-being into clearer focus. And it helped me um, then understand why storytelling is so fundamental to that link. So humans are storytelling beings And it's one of the primary ways in which we make sense of this crazy, complex world we live in. Mm -hmm. And so to understand family, to understand how family communication links to well-being, you must understand the stories that we hear and tell. And I guess one last thing I'll say is I also have a fundamental connection with my family uh, that I think 
probably drove my early interest in this. We moved around a lot. And so it was just the five of us for a long time in our lives. And I think that 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 early socialization process with your family and telling stories as a way to understand the world, they're so intricately linked. And it's such a personal and professional interest for me that it's driven, as you said, 20 years of work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You found your people. I found my you, people. You found your people. And now totally. you, you are one of those people for the next generation of teacher scholars, Jody. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I also love uh, that, that quote by John Stewart that you shared, the quality of communication is directly linked to the quality of our lives. Right. If you have to boil down, boil down into a fundamental like North Star that guides our life. Yeah. That's, that's a powerful one. Absolutely. So as of late, you have focused your energy on developing, and please let me know if I get this wrong, um, the communicated narrative sense-making theory, CNSM. Perfect. Is that right? <laughs> yes. It's such a mouthful, but yes. It is a mouthful, but an important one. Communicated narrative sense-making theory. Yes. Um, for listeners who are unfamiliar, can you just give us some of the broad strokes of of this orientation to the world? For sure. So CNSM theory is really at its heart based on that North Star that we just talked about. It's really interested in understanding the links between storytelling and health. And I define health broadly. So I mean that in terms of um, individual relational, uh, I'm sorry, individual physical and mental health and relational health. So Things like anxiety, stress, uh, depression, but also things like family satisfaction, family functioning, feelings of being supported, etc. So the theory at its heart looks at the link between storytelling and health. Um, it is guided by three heuristics, and the heuristics are retrospective storytelling, interactional storytelling, and translational storytelling. And retrospective storytelling is interested in the lasting impacts of the stories that we hear and tell. So the theory is very rooted in family communication, although it can be applied elsewhere, because we tell a lot of stories about ourselves to craft our identity, to help make sense of who we are. But we also are socialized by hearing stories about how we should behave in the world. And so retrospective storytelling uh, research is really interested in the lasting impact of those stories that we hear and tell um, and the ways in which they communicate meanings, values, and beliefs. The interactional storytelling heuristic is more concerned with communication processes. So the verbal and nonverbal processes that characterize storytelling, in particular, how we tell stories with others, um, whether we share the story with them and we're engaging in what we call joint storytelling or just the processes by which tellers and listeners co-construct meaning in an interaction. And in, in that research, we really look at the interactional sense-making behaviors and how they relate to and or reflect uh, interpersonal and relational health. Mm-hmm. And then the third heuristic is translational storytelling. And this is using narrative theories, methods, and empirical results to design interventions or other translational programs that are meant to help improve the health and well-being of particular populations of people or participants. Uh And so in all three heuristics, we're interested in the link between storytelling and health, but the theory recognizes that Storytelling is founded in a number of functions, things like creating identity, socializing to norms, um, making sense and coping, and connecting with other people. And so we can understand those links by looking both at the content, the process, and the application of storytelling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What strikes me as incredibly important is your explicit move away from a psychological 
standpoint in in approaching stories to a relational one. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, you you foreground the communicative process of storytelling and also what stories do for people, do for yeah. families. Right? Yes. They- and that move was really purposeful because when I was first starting to study storytelling, so much of it was grounded in psychological literature. And I have benefited from and used that literature and and find the conceptualization of thinking about a story as one's own individual um, understanding of self to be compelling. But what seemed to me that was missing from the literature was how people co-constructed meaning in storytelling. Um, and so communicated narrative sense-making theory actually sits in this larger model that's all about communicated sense-making and the ways in which we might think of sense-making as a cognitive process, but we can't make sense of anything without communication. And so by putting the focus on communication, we can have a richer and broader understanding of how people come to make sense of life, relationships, difficulty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm reminded of a recently released episode that had the privilege of facilitating a conversation with Dr. Joe Bianco, um, a professor at uh, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, a friend. Um, But he was really talking about his experience and his family's experience of a journey through cancer with his 11-year-old son, Andrew. And I can't help but make connections between what I heard him expressing and what I hear you emphasizing in terms of what stories can do for families. Yeah. I listened to that episode and it was beautiful um, and incredibly brave. Mm -hmm. I learned so much from listening to Joe and hear about Andrew. Um, One of the things that you all talked about in that episode was how much community surrounded him and their family and Andrew in the midst of cancer. And I think At the broader level, just thinking about storytelling broadly, that's what storytelling does. It connects people. It allows us to make sense of each other's experiences in a way that other forms of communication might not because we can, it's a common language. Um, It's it's a, a way that everyone has the capacity to communicate. And because I think of the mix of um, experience, pathos, emotion, um, and meaning making storytelling can be profound in bringing people together. Um, more specifically, we just recently in the last few years published an article, um, on cancer as communal. So we interviewed cancer survivors, family caregivers, and medical practitioners, nurses, oncologists, and palliative care providers. And what we found was that the ultimate ideal goal across those stakeholders, if you will, was experiencing cancer as communal. So there were behaviors that both facilitated and detracted from that possibility. So showing up or being absent could either facilitate or detract from experiencing cancer as communal, perspective taking support. Um, But that was everyone's ideal. And it sounds to me like Dr. Bianco and his family experienced that, that ideal. Cancer is the least ideal thing you can experience, but the communal nature of it makes it, um, or it it is the wish of people that go through that process. And uh, storytelling is certainly a bridge within that process that can really connect people with one another. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love the way you frame 
the communal experience is an ideal. Mm. And I think it's something that we all need to reckon with because um, not every survivor, not every person in treatment, not every family experiences that ideal. And there are a host of factors that can undermine um, the capacity to, to feel that sense of communal support. And mm-hmm. so in circumstances where it's hard to cultivate that, what are we called to do and who are we called to be? I think that is a, a fundamental challenge for us to yeah, remember. I completely agree. And it was really interesting because in that particular study, we looked both at the experience across all of those stakeholders, but then we also looked uh, for potential differences. And what we found was um, family caregivers were more likely than the other two groups, survivors and uh, medical providers, to feel isolated. Mm. Um, And Mm. so I thought that was a really interesting, nuanced look into who gets to experience cancer as communal and who might be suffering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For listeners who are joining us, this is an article that was published in Health Communication. And thanks to Taylor and Francis, all listeners um, can download this and access it for free. And I certainly hope that you will, um, because it's a powerful, powerful article. Um, there's another article that you will also be able to access that Jody has co-authored. And Jody, while your your um, communicated narrative sense making theory and approach, you've you've really explored that in a variety of contexts that focus on family triumphs and challenges, some from the mundane to the extraordinary around communication about sexuality, marital stress, as you noted, cancer care. One one of the areas I'd like to drill down into, because I, I think in the historical moment we're living in right now, it's incredibly important. And, and that's your work with um, communicated narrative sense-making theory in trying to understand how families communicate about mental illness I think that, as you note in your work, nearly 20% of adults in the U.S. experience mental illness every year. Mm -hmm. I suspect that is an underreporting of those experiences. I see it every day uh, when I walk into a classroom, uh, virtual or otherwise. And just to clarify, in medical terms, that mental illness is is also referred to as mental health problems, mental disorders, mental health concerns. Across all of that, what is the role of families in how individuals make sense of and manage mental health? Well, families are people's first introduction into socialization in general, learning about the way the world works. And so if you understand that, then you understand that it's the very first place that you might hear about mental health, mental illness, mental health problems, any of the terms that you used. And so the way in which family communicates about mental health and mental illness will then shape, at least in part, individuals' understanding either of what mental illness is, how we promote and or sustain mental health, and how we think about and behave toward other people who suffer from mental illness diagnoses, either outside or within our own families. And so family is a place where we learn how to think about and communicate about and then also feel about mental illness. Mm -hmm. I was drawn to the way you talk about stigma in your work about mental illness. Um, And one of the articles co-authored with Elizabeth Flood Grady. Can you talk to us about 
how stigma as a significant challenge when we're negotiating mental illness, how can we think about that communicatively? Right. So stigma in mental illness can be incredibly problematic, um, both internally and externally. So if we have stigma uh, around mental illness, it might affect whether or not we seek treatment. It might also affect whether as parents, we seek treatment for our children. Um, it might affect our self-esteem because mental illnesses are stigmatized. And as um, Elizabeth Floodgrady and I talk about in this article, uh, when someone in a family is diagnosed with a mental illness, the stigma, which exists in society, uh, is also transferred to the family. And so it is uh, mental illness is essentially, from a stigma perspective, a family level diagnosis. Um, obviously, stigma is completely problematic when it comes to treatment seeking and attitudes toward people with mental illness. But at its heart, stigma is a communicated phenomenon. The way that we know that a mental illness is stigmatized is by others communicating that to us, whether that's a parent who talks about mental illness in a stigmatizing way or media where we see representations of that stigma regularly or social media where they, where attitudes and beliefs get perpetuated. And so at its heart, stigma is a communicative phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Yes. Just yes. In the project that you did, you interviewed young adults and, and they talked to you about the lessons they learned about, about mental illness from, from family stories. A key takeaway for me when I read that piece was really the difference in uh, cautionary tales that are uh, told in families and, and tales that are about struggle. And cautionary tales tend to have an internalized focus on mental illness, whereas tales of struggle tend to be externally oriented. And, and it seems like that that's consequential. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about those different types of, of narratives that you heard and how you make sense of those? Oh, yeah. So um, I want to say that this study was based on Elizabeth Floodgrady's dissertation, and uh, she goes by Biz, so I'll refer to her in that way when we talk. But what was really interesting about starting this study was uh, most of my students, first of all, come to Nebraska, and they want to study storytelling. Um, but in this case, she wanted to look at mental health communication in families. And I said, I don't even know if families tell stories about that. Go find out. And mm. so this was study one of her dissertation in which she went to find out. Well, she went to find out what kinds of stories families tell about mental health. And what she found, and we write about in this article, what we found overwhelmingly is that families don't tell stories about mental health. They tell stories about mental illness. So right off the bat, there's a framing there that's skewed toward the negative. Mm, what was really mm. interesting about interviewing these 24 emerging adults about the stories that they heard in their families was that, you know, about half of them heard cautionary tales and half of them heard tales of struggle, as you already mentioned. The cautionary tales were one in which mental illness was really located inside the person. It was an internalized phenomenon where they made attributions where the locus of the problem was in the person. So for example, um, the participants in our study heard stories about um, uncles who misbehaved at parties and you know their mothers who were telling the stories explained it in terms of their PTSD and depression um, and that their only way of coping was through drugs and alcohol. Um, they heard stories about grandparents' uh, bipolar disorder that was really characterized in terms of rage and violence and ultimately suicide. Those stories of caution 
had real potential for reinforcing the negative stigma of mental mm-hmm. illness. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas those who heard stories of struggle were about most of the time parents own struggle with mental illness. So whereas the stories of caution were about what we called third parties, uncles, grandparents, you know, cousins, stories of struggle were framed from the perspective of the parents' own experience. And so when it was about their own struggle with mental illness, really the the problems then became attributed to outside the person. It was circumstances that sort of brought on the depression and that the parent was then dealing with. So things like postpartum depression, um, a parent's death, et cetera. And so kids or emerging adults, I should say, in this study, they really heard different kinds of stories and, and stories that we suspect could both reinforce and mitigate uh, the stigma against mental illness. What was really interesting, though, even though they heard stories of caution, um, the participants in the study, when we looked at the lessons that they learned uh, from these stories, they were really mostly positive lessons about awareness of mental illness, both in terms of understanding other people's experience with mental illness, but also their own potential, especially within family genetics of um, either understanding their own mental illness, and some of our participants were also diagnosed, or knowing that that was a possible diagnosis for them, um, but also understanding. So really hearing the stories expanded their understanding of mental illness and their empathy toward other people. Hi folks, Lynn breaking in for just a second. We've been talking to Dr. Jody Kellis, Professor and Chair of Communication Studies at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. We've been talking about her work on the intersections between family storytelling, health, and healing. For your convenience, we've placed links to recently published articles in health communication on our Facebook page. Okay, back to the conversation. What I find powerful in listening to you and in reading uh, Biz and yours work is the real potential for translating these theoretical ideas that are grounded in the stories that people share, translating theory to practice, mm-hmm. right? What a simple, low-tech high potential for improving the quality of life just to to consider right moving from third person storytelling to first person storytelling right yes. understanding the differences between those that's um that's really meaningful jody Absolutely. Thank you. I mean, and that's why the translational storytelling heuristic of CNSM theory is so exciting to me. And it's, you know, just where my heart lives, because we have to do the basic research like this to find out what is happening, how, what are the impacts of these stories that we hear and tell. But because of that type of research, we could then very easily and, and very helpfully explain to parents small changes that they could make, for example, uh, since what we found is that parents were the one and primarily mothers who were telling these stories, to shift meaning making and have a different kind of lasting impact on their kids. And just as an aside, you know, I feel so fortunate because every time my students do studies and that you know I work with them it seems to be at the right time developmentally that I'm raising my children <laughs> so for, because, because biz did this study it's helped me talk to my own children and tell them stories about mental health and mental illness in more impactful ways because Amanda Holman did her dissertation on how parents 
have the sex talk with their kids. Mm-hmm. And we've published research on that. I have been, be- I benefit from having conversations with my kids about sex based on that research. And, um, my current, my current, uh, or actually just graduated student, Tony Morgan, did her dissertation on how uh, families communicate about religious difference. And so that has been beneficial in talking to my children. So um, I just mm-hmm. keep benefiting from all these brilliant students that I have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Gifts that keep on giving. Exactly. But I will tell you that parents are hungry for this research. And I'm thinking that you've probably found this in your work too. Uh, Practitioners, medical practitioners are hungry for anything that we can give them. Just practical, small, as you said, low tip, low tech um, ideas for how to better communicate with patients and families. The same thing is true for parents. We want somebody to help us know the right way to have these tough conversations. Absolutely. And I found that creating space as a teacher scholar for people to narrate their worlds, they know, right? Even if they haven't articulated, they have wisdom um, that hasn't been shared and, and collected and thought about in relation to the wisdom of others. And there's there's a great deal of power in listening to people and being a person who gets to then boundary span between those lived stories and what that might mean on a broader systemic level. It's just a privilege to be trusted to do that. That was beautiful. I, I, that was, yes, we need to quote that regularly Mm -hmm. because it Mm -hmm. storytelling is a connecting thread. And I love what you said about people having wisdom. Even when we are not experts, Mm -hmm, we all mm -hmm. have wisdom and the way to share that with each other is through making space to listen to each other's stories. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You are, you are a a story catcher, a story sharer. Mm -hmm. Um, And I want to pick up on something you said, because you said where your heart is right now is in the translational storytelling piece. And I I am so humbled and excited for the work that you're doing at at Narrative Nebraska, the lab that that you direct. Um, You've been developing, implementing, modifying this translational storytelling intervention you call narrative connection Mm -hmm. a forthcoming piece that you shared with me focuses on narrative parenting and a translational intervention modeled on narrative medicine and narrative therapy approaches but in the context of really allowing parents to come together, reflect, share, learn from themselves and others. So for people who haven't had the privilege of of reading your work yet, can you talk to us about kind of your translational storyteller, storytelling interventions generally? And let's go deep with, with the narrative parenting one. Yeah. Oh my gosh, thank you for giving me the chance to talk about it because like I'm smiling because this really is where mm. where my heart and my passion is right now. So um, as I said before, translational storytelling is really about taking, synthesizing narrative theories, methods, and empirical results to put them into practice and try to help improve health and well-being. So um, I will say that I really consider CNSM theory to be a synthesizing theory. So it draws from many interdisciplinary approaches. Um, So Pennebaker's work on the expressive writing paradigm, Rita Sharon and colleagues work on narrative medicine, Michael White and others work on narrative therapy, Dan McAdams work on uh, narrative theory of identity and tries to synthesize practices and processes that we know are empirically validated to help people make sense, which should in turn help alleviate some of their burden and or give them a sense of control over the difficulties in their lives. We synthesize multiple theories and approaches in order to help give people space to tell their stories and then also teach them how to 
listen to and connect with and understand other people's stories. So the narrative connection intervention is just one possible translational storytelling intervention, but it's really this umbrella that takes a number of these approaches that I mentioned. So some of the workshop practices and principles that are at the heart of narrative medicine and some compassionate listening techniques that are embedded in Michael White's narrative therapy practices. And um, it brings those together in a small group workshop format that enables people to connect, make sense of, and cope together through storytelling and story listening. Um, And so Mm -hmm. the intervention that you mentioned that we are uh, writing about in this particular paper is we call narrative parenting. Um, And so the idea is that as one context where we might be able to enact the link between storytelling and well-being, parenting is one that's ripe for that kind of intervention. So there's research that talks about parents are very subject to the trap of perfectionism. So Jen Mm -hmm. Jackal has um, done some research in which she found that parents really are expected to be their child's everything. They are basically in charge of their children's success. And so they have to be the best coach, the best supporter, the best teacher, the best nurturer. And embedded in that is, is the idea of being the perfect parent. And so we wanted to, uh, take our narrative connection intervention, which we've piloted in the context of cancer, um, into the world of parenting to see if hearing and telling stories of parenting might help people work through the trap of perfectionism and the potential negative shaming of oneself and Mm -hmm. others Mm -hmm. and one's children that can come from, uh, the problems of perfectionism through hearing and telling stories with one another. So we mm-hmm. ran, uh, this was a pilot test and we ran a few groups of parents through the narrative parenting workshop, which is a three session workshop that includes, uh, a first session in which, um, building off Dan McAdams and colleagues work. We have people talk about the, their parenting journey as if it's a book and they go through the chapters of that book in writing on their own. And then they, uh, we invite them to share those with each other. So that's really a trust building exercise and one that allows people to frame parenting in narrative terms. And then in the second night of the workshop, we have people, um, really, uh, based in some narrative medicine practices, we have people write to a prompt about difficulties of parenting. So in this case, write about a time that perfectionism impacted you as a parent. And we have them write to that prompt because there's really important sense making that happens in writing that is not the same as what might happen in telling. Uh, But then because we want them to connect with each other, we invite them to share Uh, those stories that they wrote with one another. And um, we, but before we ask them to share, we teach them what we call compassionate listening or witnessing techniques that we've adapted from Michael White's work in narrative therapy to give them a sense for how to respond to one's own or another person's difficulty. So when you hear a difficult story that somebody shares with you, one of the toughest things is knowing what to say. And that's true in the context of struggling with parenting, in the context of um, illness or um, cancer or helping to somebody to grieve the death of a loved one, we often avoid communication because we don't know what to say. And that kind of avoidance can then perpetuate this notion that everybody's parenting is perfect because nobody talks about the struggle. Uh So we teach uh these uh, witnessing techniques that are really translatable across contexts. And then we invite people to share their story. And then we invite them to witness each other's stories using these techniques. Um, And then on the third night, they get a chance to reframe based on research that shows uh, that positively framed stories 
can benefit the sense-making process and and therefore often relates to higher levels of well-being. We give parents to write about a time they were successful as parents and they write to that prompt. They then are invited to share and witness each other's um, writings. And what we found is that the key theme in the interviews that follow-up interviews that we did with parents in these workshops was one of solidarity. Mm. And the phrase that they used most often is, I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. And so they had been living in some ways alone in these perfectionist notions. And what they found by hearing other parents tell stories about their parenting failures and successes was that they are not the only ones who are going through this. And that idea of solidarity to me is exactly what we need right now in a world that is so characterized by divisiveness Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. rush uh, and perfectionism. Mm -hmm. And so that's a little bit about that intervention, which incidentally, or not incidentally, excitingly, we've just received a grant um, a COVID-19 rapid response grant from the Office of Research and Economic Development at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln to study narrative parenting in the context of COVID. Um, and so we're going to be putting that intervention online and offering it to groups of parents uh, to really work through their experiences parenting in the midst of COVID-19. Uh, And then we also received money in that grant to also study uh, ways in which military service members who are returning from a COVID-19 deployment can use the narrative connection intervention to make sense of the difficulties of those deployments. Mm. Mm. Congratulations. Uh, Worthy worthy of support. And that support is vital to expand the scope and, and potential reach of, of your work. Yes. The meta narrative of perfectionism that, that can breed blame and shame and all sorts of unrealistic expectations. If you could share again I know that you included these in your discussion, but I think these are really key, easy takeaways for listeners. The prompts that were a part of this, like if you had to write the chapters of your book of parenting, what what would those chapter titles be? That's powerful. Oh my gosh. And, And then when you hear, when you do that yourself, one, it's just this excellent meaning making exercise for oneself because stories catalog our lives to put it in book form and to write out the chapters. And again, I credit, this is credited to Dan McAdams um, work, but we've, we've adapted it here for use. So to do that, first of all, for yourself is a really interesting exercise in just seeing what comes out on paper as important to you. Mm -hmm. And then to share that with other people One, it allows you to get to know people in a way that is much richer and more meaningful than, so I have two kids and, you know, I live in Lincoln, Nebraska. My kids are 14 and 10 and one plays lacrosse and one is an actress. That is a completely different way of getting to know someone than this richer storied form. Mm -hmm. And then they find things in common. So in that study, we found that, uh, that almost everybody had a chapter at the beginning of their parenting journey that somehow revolved around the idea of like the dark days, <laughs> like the no sleep, the I have no idea what I'm doing. You know, this is really hard and it's not as beautiful as I thought it was going to be. Everyone had that chapter. And so they really connected on that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I could, I can see taking that into a classroom and having students chart the chapters of their undergraduate experience. Oh, yeah. We've done this across all sorts of different contexts. We've done this in the context context of cancer. I do this with my graduate students. Write about your graduate student life as if it's the chapters of a book. Mm-hmm. Um, and they write about that. I've done this with undergrads. Um, 
you could do it with older adults. Uh, we've done research in assisted living facilities and to help older adults, you know, catalog years of stories. This is a really useful tool. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think the other prompt that you used in that work, um, describe a moment when perfectionism impacted you as a parent. Yeah. I think that's also movable uh, across yeah. contexts. <laughs> oh my gosh. Absolutely. Yes. And yeah. I mean, that's what, in, 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 as we're adapting this, uh, these prompts for the COVID-19 studies, it's really about talk about a time that you've struggled as a parent in the context of COVID-19. So, so even the prompt itself doesn't have to be about perfectionism, but you could yeah. certainly take that perfectionism prompt and do a workshop with a group of women business leaders, for example, and say, talk about a time perfectionism impacted you as a manager mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and get people to write about that. And in fact, I've done similar types of prompts at women in business conferences. And I think mm-hmm. that just giving people the chance to tell a story in a timed manner uh, and write it, this is this is really things that I've learned from taking workshops in narrative medicine allows you to make sense in a way that you could not have even anticipated. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I think that, that the the act of then telling those stories and honoring each other's stories through these witnessing techniques um, adds another powerful layer. And then the last prompt, just to answer your question is really about talk about a time that you succeeded in a time mm. in a struggle, a parenting struggle or a time of difficulty or stress. And it's really important, I think, to not only give people a chance to make sense of their failures or their difficulties, but also to recognize and give themselves some grace for times that they achieved, succeeded, did well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm really glad you brought up uh, COVID and and the moments that we're living in. And again, thinking about just the living and relating and organizing in a time of coronavirus has shifted so dramatically from the first week in March until the middle of June, because we're also so, so many of us who perhaps haven't been as aware, uh, many people have for a long time of of racial systemic injustices, but more of us now are right. The chapters of the COVID experience would range, right? Oh yeah, across time. And in the piece that you shared with me, that w- that's forthcoming. There's a passage that it kept lingering with me, and I want to share it with listeners because I think it's potent and it reveals the the heuristic the the real value of of what you're doing. You write, in a societal milieu increasingly dominated by divisiveness, distraction, and other barriers to deeper forms of connection, rises in mental illness, and the challenge in co-laboring to make sense of difficulty, there is significant need for research that translates findings on the benefits of collaborative storytelling into programs to improve communicated sense-making, connection, understanding, and psychosocial well-being. I wrote preach, preach um, (laughs) in the side of of, um, the manuscript. So I'm wondering if we could talk just a bit about how, how might narrative connection interventions be meaningful in light of uh, these moments that we're living right now? Yeah, I mean, I, that passage was written before COVID and um, before the protests that we're seeing in response to racism and and racial violence. But it, it seems even more poignant at this moment, doesn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so I think that we are really already thinking about ways in the studies that I talked about, about bringing narrative connection into the moment of COVID. So um, 
having to become parents or military service members in the midst of a pandemic that is unlike anything we've ever seen introduces a whole set of complications and stressors that are then piled on top of all the other divisiveness, distraction, and mental illness and problems that we face as a society. And so I think the chance to provide a little bit of a release valve for that community Mm. building and sense making is imperative. Um, And I'll just give you a quick example. And then I want to talk about another piece of this. But this last week, because we just received this grant, I um, ran our team, which is uh, some, some members of the team who were involved in narrative parenting, but then several new members. So there were six of us total. I ran them through the narrative parenting intervention. So we, instead of doing it once a week for three weeks, we did it three times in a row. So three days in a row. And we Mm -hmm. ran through it just so that they would understand the process and just reminded me and it, it, the, the degree to which it built community among that group and they learned from each other's articulations, just beautiful metaphors and stories of what they've gone through during this time. It was a complete transformation of the team. And it just reminded me why little things like this can be what they described as soul filling and life giving. Those Mm -hmm. were the, the messages that this team who's already invested in this, but had never experienced it talked about again and again. Um, And so I think that processes that we can engage one another in that are soul-filling and life-giving that only take an hour or less uh, are so needed right now. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that they can also, I think storytelling is key in building connection among people um, who need to understand others' experiences So as uh, people who are, so as a person, I can only speak for myself, but as a person who is an ally to the Black Lives Matter movement, the best lesson that I learned over the course of the last, you know, several weeks was to listen, to Mm -hmm. listen to the stories of Black and Brown individuals and to learn from listening And listening is broadly conceived here because that could include listening to podcasts or listening to story core stories or talking to friends and listening to them or reading or whatever. But uh, storytelling binds us to one another. It it is a bridge of connection. That is, that's its fundamental, um, the fundamental thing that I think we need in our society right now. Um, And so listening to others' stories is unbelievably important in this moment. And, and also, um, you know, as a researcher, that's a call to me too, to make sure that more diverse voices are heard in the storytelling of the research that we do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think about the, um, beautiful possibility that could come from your work in conversation with the work of Dr. Mohan Duda, the work of Mm -hmm. Dr. Rebecca D'Souza, Dr. Shanak Sastri, so many people, Dr. Robin Borland, who have been on the front lines of creating space for people who sometimes their voices have been unheard and on the margins, they are amplifying them. Mm -hmm. And, um, there's a lot of potential that I think can bubble up and happen um, when we are intentional in um, acknowledging and responding to those voices. And it's interesting because our daughter, Emma, who just turned 19, um, has been to a couple of protests in Columbus, Ohio, and I think your family's not very far from Columbus. Is that right, Jody? Yeah, they, they live there. Yeah. My brother okay. lives in Columbus. Yep. So I don't know if, if you've talked to him or not, but 
in the news reports about what a, what's been going on in Columbus, certainly some of that has happened, right? There have there have been, right, the use of excessive force and and tear gas and rubber bullets, mm. and there have been breaking of windows and and some people um, rioting, right? And and it all sorts of motives, different types of people might be involved with that, but. Emma's experience was very different. And the first time that she came home, she talked about how around the, the Capitol building, the people who were organizing this, it really was reflective of if you if you dig deep into Black Lives Matter, they focus on healing justice. Mm-hmm. And um so it was very reflected in that in what was going on. They invited people to sit with someone they didn't know and listen to the story of another. Hmm. They had artists, they had poets, poets, um, songwriters who were bringing bringing different people together through various storied forms, right? Um, with the intent of understanding trying to understand and imagine the life world of someone very different from you. And that, that understanding was a first step in us acknowledging collectively that we can and must do better. Yeah. Um, But that is not what, what is on the TV news, right? On, on CNN (laughs) or MSNBC or Fox or whatever your outlet is. That's not what we're seeing. We're not seeing the, the story sharing and and witnessing and listening that I think um, is at the heart of healing justice. Yeah. Well, and it seems to me that I have so many thoughts, um, but it seems to me that storytelling is a grassroots phenomenon. And, and as you know, as a, I'm an interpersonal communication and family communication scholar. So to me, what Emma was doing is exactly what needs to be happening. Sitting down next to someone you don't know and telling each other stories and that that can happen in so many different ways, but it has to start at a, at a community level. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it also, just to bring it back full circle, it has to start with conversations in families. So um, I took my 14-year-old daughter to a protest here in Lincoln, and um, it it was um, a really moving experience for both of us, but it was also really meaningful to her to be included in that and to feel as though she was doing something important, but, but more so understanding other people's experiences. But then that also opened up space for conversation in our family, storytelling in our family, explicit talk uh, in families is also a really important grassroots part Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. this storytelling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's not easy. It can be really painful and really vulnerable because you listen and, and, and you easily internalize and and then project and identify yourself as being a part of a system that unwittingly or unintentionally might have done real harm, right. To others and to, to stick with that, right. To learn through that. That's the hard work of reconciliation. It's not easy. It's not easy. Yeah. I saw a post the other day that said something like, I know everyone wants to get back to their normal lives, but this is not over. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really important that stories can be all the wonderful things that we've talked about. They can be um, help people make sense. They can connect people, but they can also be disquieting and uncomfortable. And that's important too, especially Mm -hmm. right now. And Mm -hmm. just to go back to something else that you said, um, the work of some of the scholars that you mentioned, I 100% agree that part of what we need to do is more interdisciplinary or intradisciplinary work. But so many um, of the people that you mentioned, and then also your work, bring these 
other storied forms into the mix in ways that I think are profoundly important and the future of good translational storytelling work. So Mm -hmm. for example, bringing in arts-based approach or theatrical approaches um, into translational uh, interventions is important and meaningful and that verbal stories are not the only stories that help people. Yeah. Jody, thank you. Um, thank you for being here today. And for listeners, thanks for joining Dr. Jody Kellis and I for this episode of Defining Moments. Defining Moments is produced by WOUB Public Media and the Barbara Gerald's Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. Adam Rich is our co producer. You can subscribe to Defining Moments at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or the NPR Podcast Directory. Please also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at DM Podcast W-O-U-B. On our Facebook page, we provide links to Jody's recent articles in health communication that we've been talking about. We hope you will take time to rate and review this podcast on, on Apple Podcasts. And as always, we hope you will go in peace and love one another. Mm